Hello, fellow kids, and welcome to episode 37 of Hello, Fellow Kids. Uh, we are back in Fablehaven for the fourth time, and because it's the fourth time, we're not going to go over what has happened previously, because otherwise it would be a five-hour episode. <laughs> we get Anthony Stewart had to go previously on Fablehaven. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if we could do that, then sure. But yes, if you are lost at any point, go back through the first three episodes that we've done on the series, but we're really deep in the thick of it now, so we... We're kind of just going to dive in. Yeah, so I finished it last night, and I was like, I don't know how I felt about this one. And then I looked at your review, and Josh is like, four stars. And usually he's always trying to push me like, five stars. It's five stars. Well, I'm like, I don't I don't know. It's, it's a four for me, dog. And when I saw that you went with four, I was like, oh. Oh, did Josh feel like this was a weaker entry in the series like I did? I think it and book three kind of shared similar issues of really being in service of whatever happens in book five to the point where they aren't necessarily super strong on their own. Like book one is just a really good like introduction to the world and book two is a great follow up because it's expanding on that and there's still kind of that like, you know, people liked the first one. Are they going to like a whole series of this? But then once it's like, nah, you're good for the whole thing, it's kind of then it's kind of like, well, I know what my end goal is going to be, so I'm just kind of setting up to get there. And so three and four, for me, have kind of felt like that. But it's still, he's still a very good chess player in that regard of, like, yes. the setup is, like, like it, I, I don't really mind it. It's not as strong, but I don't mind it too much. So I would say it's probably bottom half of Fablehavens, but still, low-end Fablehaven is still... Fairly it's still really good. YA yeah. fantasy, so. Yeah, yeah. I was just like, I I don't know. I'm just not feeling this one as much. I think it's going to be hard to top the third one, because I feel like the third one's my favorite because of Patton Burgess punching a centaur on the side. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That wins everything. <laughs> like, I, I like was reading the book and got to a mention of centaurs, and then I stopped to laugh for a bit because I, I just thought Brendan Fraser punching a centaur in the side because basically Pat Burgess is Brendan Fraser's character from the Mummy series, which I'm okay with. I think we also like fan cast him as like Nathan Fillion, just that rogue adventurer, yeah, like friendly kind of uh, himbo energy, but he actually is kind of smart, you know? Right. Uh, <laughs> Brendan Fraser played so many himbos in the 90s, just so you know. It's like what most of his career was. It was like Encino Man, George of the Jungle, probably lots more that I'm not thinking of right now. So maybe that statement isn't super correct. But anyway, we're in Fablehaven. This is not Brendan Fraser in Fablehaven. All right. Chapter one, journal. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I forgot it was called journal. So for a split second, I'm like, what is he doing? So <laughs> I thought you were going to start being like, I'm just really frustrated with the podcast because Mara doesn't do as much as me. And she keeps saying our podcast, but I feel like it's mostly mine. Well, I'm just like, what? I thought we were reading Fable <laughs> Anyway, thank you for the momentary panic <laughs> slash amusement. <laughs> Chapter one, journal. It's December, and Kendra is at her house studying Patton's Journal of Secrets under the revealing light of her last Umite candle. It's filled with tales of his adventures and notes on the Evening Star, but tonight she's reading her favorite passage, written after his time-traveling adventure in the previous book. It's addressed to Kendra, 
and notes that Patton has information on the location of two more keys to the demon prison Zizix, but he won't reveal them here. Instead, he has concealed this information in a hidden chamber beyond Fablehaven's Hall of Dread, only to be accessed if it becomes vital. Otherwise, Kendra should make no mention of this information at all. Kendra stops reading for the night and considers her current situation. A prime target for the Sphinx and the Evening Star, she and Seth are under constant surveillance by a rotating cast of Knights of the Dawn, including Warren, Tanu, Coulter, and a new woman named Elise. While she catches us up on these names, a piece of paper slides under the door. It's Seth's Christmas list, and it's filled with insane requests like hang gliders and hot tubs. She goes into Seth's room to confront him and realizes what he's done. He's smuggled some of the fairy gold home and plans on buying himself all these things, then cover it up by saying some distant relative saw his list and got those things for him instead. Kendra berates Seth for his lack of integrity, and he promises to return the gold to Fablehaven next time they're there. Kendra returns to her room and consoles herself by clutching the letters she's received from her crush, Gavin. She hears her parents return for the night. She quickly hides any evidence of her magical life before they arrive. Okay, let's talk, let's talk about the list. And this is a very amazing plan, but I felt like Kendra was like frickin' Sherlock Holmes figuring all this out. He's given her nothing, and she's like, oh, isn't it interesting? You still have gold, don't you? You're going to pass this off as gifts. Well, he's just like, how did you piece this together? And it's like, you've been my brother for 13 years. I know you very well. <laughs> And I said um, in my notes when the list gets pushed under her door and she reads it that it sets off her big sister bullshit detector, which <laughs> you depending on the little like my brother's nothing like Seth, but I, you know, I can still like catch on to stuff with him. I always knew when he was lying when I was a kid. He didn't lie often, but if he did, I, I always knew he did. <laughs> I do like that. It's the not with that attitude thing where she's like, do you honestly ex expect to get a hang glider for Christmas? And he's like, I certainly won't if I don't ask. <laughs> What's he going to do with a hang glider? Where would he even put it? <laughs> they live in suburbia. I guess he could try and keep it at the barn at Fablehaven, but then he'd only be using it in the summer. And like, who knows what flying creatures would like knock the hang glider to the ground, and then he'd break every bone in his body. <laughs> the centaur shot me down! They so would. They like, would! It's like, oh, that little this bitch. This is a no-fly zone! <laughs> this is a no-fly zone. You never had that rule. We have that rule now because we know you, Seth Sorensen. Chapter 2. <laughs> Sting Bulb. Kendra finishes class at her high school. Yeah, she's in high school now. And heads to the nearby rec center where she volunteers at the daycare every weekday. She meets up with Rex, one of the main daycare employees, who shows her a presentation he has for the kids. Five closed boxes that they can reach into and guess what they're touching. Kendra tries it out, and after the peel, grapes, and spaghetti, she ends up pricking her finger on a cactus fruit, which Rex thought he'd pulled all the spines off. He takes that box away, and daycare proceeds as normal, with Rex, Kendra, and a woman named Rhonda leading the kids in various activities. Just before Kendra is due to go home, Rex asks her to come into his office. There, she sees an exact copy of herself, and next thing she knows, Rex is smothering her with a chloroform rag. She wakes up tied to a plank with Rex standing over her, except it's not Rex. It's actually a replica of Rex created from a sting bulb, a magical plant that quickly takes the form of the first thing that is pricked by its needle. The replica lives for a few days, carrying out the orders of whoever grew it, then it dies. So that fruit in the box from earlier, that's what created the Kendra clone. 
Kendra tries to appeal to the fake Rex, but to no avail. She figures nobody will have any reason to suspect anything is wrong, so there's no help coming for her as the fake Rex loads her into his car and drives her away. I thought you'd be happy to know I wrote in the notes, for fruits! (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and also, Rex set off every alarm bell I had. Like, immediately. Ding-a-ling, ding-a-ling, yeah. Yeah, they said mustache. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) They said mustache, and I knew he was a bad guy. (laughs) I was already like, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out. And then like, hey, put your hands in these boxes. And at first I'm like, is this like a Jimmy Fallon bit you've stolen? And then when she, when he's like, oh, I put a cactus in there. And it's like, why would that be a thing you do for a daycare? So I'm already like... Red flag, red flag, red flag. And then I had, like, I don't know how many, like, a huge stack on my desk by the time we got to um, him calling her. He he gets her away from everybody at the daycare by being like, oh, there's an irate parent on the phone that you need to talk to. And I was just like, they're never going to get the 15-year-old volunteer for that. Like, ever. Yeah. (laughs) Like, and the other employee in the place wasn't like, that's weird. No. Because there was another employee here who did know about it and then, like, told everybody later like oh yeah she she got called into the office to talk to an angry parent like and why would that have been okay like no so uh that felt weird chapter three imposter the next morning seth notices that kendra isn't herself for one thing she jokes about skipping school for another she's on her third bowl of cocoa krispies he isn't worried enough to do anything about it though and goes to school after school He goes into Kendra's room to find her letters from Gavin, which are filled with exciting dragon stories. Kendra catches him snooping and attacks him violently. Something is definitely up. Late that night, Seth is awakened by Warren at his window. Warren and Elise caught Kendra sending a letter addressed to one Tarina Barker in Illinois, which contains sensitive information about Fablehaven and even promises that Kendra will deliver Patton's journal to Tarina. Warren and Seth immediately confront Kendra, who is sloppy about her attempts at hiding the truth. When she realizes she's lost, she pops a poison capsule and kills herself. And now Warren and Seth think that Kendra is dead, and her parents are going to find her body in the morning. Good grief, that is dark. Yeah, I I wrote, this is a children's book. <laughs> <laughs> this book felt like the fourth Harry Potter book, when you're like, oh, oh, not everything works out, does it? Right, when, yeah, it's like, oh, this is... This is different. This is... Oh, no. We Except can't we, go back. There's dark days ahead, Kendra and Seth. And, and they're just like, well, she's dead. I guess we go back to bed. And I'm like, what? She's not going to be any less dead in the morning. I don't know. I think Seth probably should have woken his parents up right then and been like, I, I thought I heard something in Kendra's room, and I looked, and I don't think she's okay. So at least gets... I, I don't know. I think going back to bed and then having to like be like, what? In the morning is kind of rough. So it's like, tell them now while you're crying for real. Plus, like, <laughs> more like, go back to bed. I'll just go out the window. <laughs> I was like... He's just like, well, we really botched that one, didn't we? <laughs> it's like that meme of the old man shrugging. Guess she's dead. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. I was not laughing at the time. I was, like, horrified. But now it's just kind of funny. Oh, God, these clowns. No wonder the society just runs circles around them all the time. It's still that. No, I just just love that image of just me like, oh, jeez, ah, man, that's 
Dang, <laughs> sucks to suck, Seth. Uh, I'm just gonna... I'm gonna go... Uh, can you close this behind me? <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell anyone I was here. What? <laughs> I'm just picturing him in the morning with the parents. Like, their parents are gonna be horribly upset that their child's dead in bed. While they're like, Seth, we've got bad news. Kendra's dead. And then he just reacts like uh, Mark Wahlberg in The Happening. What? No. (laughs) (laughs) Chapter 4. Captive. Rex travels with the real Kendra for over a day and eventually brings her to a well-furnished home in a remote location. There she is introduced to her captor proper, Tarina Barker. She is Electoblix, meaning she can suck out the youth of humans in order to maintain her own. She doesn't plan on draining Kendra's, however, merely keep her until the Sphinx has his next step ready. Tarina guides Kendra through the house and shows her to a library filled with fish swimming through the air. It is very cool. Then she takes Kendra to her room and lets her be. Shortly after, Kendra is greeted by Hayden and Cody, two of Tarina's less fortunate victims. Despite only being about 30 years old, they are elderly and frail. They give Kendra the lowdown. Tarina is a very old Lectablix, and as such, her magic is getting weaker. She ages about 25 years for each real-world year, so she needs victims frequently. She currently has seven other captives, all men who thought they could make a quick buck caring for a wealthy dowager that she advertised herself as. They explain that Tarina is susceptible to flattery and has enough of a conscience to let her victims keep the last few years to themselves, though they remain captives. Surviving Tarina will be quite an adventure, but they offer to help keep an eye out on Kendra's behalf. Okay, so I dumb, because uh, she says, I'm Electoblix. Do you know what that means? And I'm like, you drink milk? And then it turns out, <laughs> no. That would be Electoblix. Okay, I know that now. <laughs> I, feel I thought like... you were American. <laughs> I feel like if Seth had been there, he would made the milk remark. So, <laughs> I'm Electoblix. So am I. I also drink milk. <laughs> You're not special, lady. <laughs> Oh god. Okay, yeah, and then like the um the elderly young men is like they're in their thirties, but they look like old men, so it's like so like what Gen Z thinks like millennials look like. <laughs> <laughs> you're thirty on the internet? Oh my god, you're old. <laughs> also, I kinda like that she justifies doing this. It's like, oh these guys are like dickhead gold diggers, so I'm doing the world a favor by draining them. And yeah. It's like, oh, I mean, you're kind of not wrong, <laughs> but still, that doesn't I, mean you get to do it. She actually, she has an email address, which is autumnsolace at gmail.com. I emailed it, but I didn't get a reply. Oh, no, you're know, like, I'm looking for a position. My name is Joshua, and I like milk. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to be like, what? <laughs> Did you, like, attach a picture of yourself flexing in the bathroom mirror? Oh, I, I did think of something to say that isn't a stupid joke, but, like, I was waiting for, like, the library aquarium to come back. I was like, you don't introduce a shark swimming around and then it doesn't eat someone. I just realized something. Would you you're just... Right, you're, you're right, it doesn't come back, but it does foreshadow the two places at once sort of a thing that the knapsack ties into. Oh, okay. Magic-wise. Were you as sick of the word knapsack as I was by the end? Yeah, I had to swap it to bag and backpack in my notes periodically. Thank you, because I was just like, can you quit saying knapsack? It reminded me of when I worked 
at a seafood counter and uh when we would get like shellfish in they'd come in i'm not going to use the term the woman did because i hated it but this like kind of see-through bag and then you kind of cut it open and uh kind of sprawl all the seashells like out so everybody could see it like oh look at there's mussels today but this woman was like where's the stuff you usually have and i go like it's right here we have it she goes no what i'm looking for it comes in a mesh sack it's always right here and it's in a mesh sack i was like right we took it out of the bag so this is what's here she goes no what i'm looking for is in a mesh sack she just i was like i'm gonna hit you in the mouth if you keep saying mesh sack. I'm gonna stuff you in a mesh sack. <laughs> and cinch the bag. Throw you back. Throw you into the bay. <laughs> but my coworker had enough too and he just went into the walk-in and then came out with one of the mesh sacks and like just gave it to her so she'd shut up. But I just couldn't get her to understand that what do you think comes in the bag? It's this. Just get it like this. Chapter 5 morning with a u oh okay i was picturing like sunshine on my shoulders <laughs> makes me happy sunshine on my dead sister's shoulders as it comes in the room and we find her corpse but warren shut the window <laughs> Okay, but Warren's totally like that neighbor guy in every, like, 90s sitcom that just climbs through the window, right? Oh, what? Are you saying he should have come in to the, like, he goes, hey, Seth, and then, bam, like that surf guitar. <laughs> hey, Seth, whoa, what happened to your sister? <laughs> well, Clarissa, you finally killed Ferguson. <laughs> okay, go on. Chapter 5, Morning. After Kendra's funeral... Uh, Grandma and Grandpa Sorensen introduced Seth to Trask, a detective and Knight of the Dawn who is trying to piece together the events leading up to this tragedy. He has stationed a man in Illinois after following up on the letter Kendra tried to send, but there haven't been any strong leads yet. Seth is then informed he will be taken to Fablehaven for safekeeping, and that Kendra's magic belongings will be rounded up as well. On the way, Grandpa gets a call. Maddox the Fairy Trapper has arrived through the magical bathtub after a long trip to the fallen Brazilian preserve, and he's in bad shape. They arrive at Fablehaven, where Maddox is being healed by Tanu. Maddox figured out the location of the artifact in Brazil, but neither he nor the Evening Star have retrieved it. Speaking of artifact locations, Seth asks about the room in the Hall of Dread, which is apparently where dark creatures that need no upkeep, things like the Revenant, are housed. Nobody has found the room yet because Patton only wrote that information in his coded journal. But back to Maddox. He spent most of his time in Brazil hiding from Lyserna, the demon who has taken over the preserve, but he can draw them a map to the vault if they want. But first, he should probably rest. Oh, wait, what year was this? 2007? Uh, 2008? Uh, text copyright 2009. 2009, okay. I'm trying to think what songs were popular then that probably would have played because sometimes when you like go to youtube to like li yeah i'm old i go to youtube to sometimes find songs and it's fine like a sad song that's and then the comments are all like this reminds me of my sister beth who died such and such we played this at her funeral you know if, yeah if uh the the Sorensons are going to be the kind of people who would like yeah we played my heart will go on for kendra <sighs> yeah what would be the 2009 equivalent of that I was trying to think of it, and the only thing I could think of is, I think it came too late to do this, but that song by the band Perry, If I Die Young. Uh, oh, no, that I think that would have been about right, right right around at the right spot. 
I thought it was more like 2010 because I know I was already married at that time because like that was when that was when my cat died. And then I would I would find that song on YouTube and listen to it and then cry and cry and cry. But then like stop crying when it got to like the really self-righteous second verse about her not being a big fat whore. And then (laughs) started crying again when, you know, the good part kept going. Uh, You're right. The album's 2010, the first song released in 2009, but it wasn't that one. So, yeah. Okay. Because that, that would be the song to play while Seth just sits there just like, God, rub it in. <laughs> he had a rough time in this book. This was very Seth-centric, and I kind of, like, appreciated that. Right, because um, we kind of always just see him being a dipshit. Yeah, so, and now we get to see, like, he has a thought process behind that sometimes. His dipshittery, yeah. There was a few times where I'm like, why am I on Seth's side about this? I don't feel okay being on Seth's <laughs> side about this. But he's he's right, like, a few times. And I was just like, yeah. Ugh, don't put me in this position. I don't want the fetus being correct. <laughs> yeah. And he cries a lot in this. And I don't think we've really seen him do that before. Yeah, I mean... He... Kendra did, too. I mean, they both go through quite a bit. I know. All right, let's. We, we're probably done. All right, well, uh, for next month, we're going to be reading. Uh, I meant discussing the. God, you fool. <laughs> Will you just go on to chapter six? Chapter six, The All Seeing Eye. <laughs> Back in Tarina's mansion, Cody is teaching Kendra the basics of chess when they hear the arrival of Tarina's next victim. Kendra rushes downstairs to try and convince the poor guy, Russ, to leave, but Tarina catches her in the act and puts a stop to it. As Tarina's goblin butler, Jameson, drags Kendra away, Kendra watches Tarina sap Russ's youth, and the man collapse on the floor. That night, Kendra writes SOS messages and folds them into paper airplanes, then throws them out the window. Tarina comes in looking noticeably younger and tells Kendra to stop littering because her airplanes suck and they've already been found by Tarina's minions. She then tells Kendra the Sphinx will be arriving tomorrow, so she better play nice. The next morning, Cody brings Kendra breakfast, then Tarina treats Kendra like a living doll, picking her outfit and doing her hair before she meets with the Sphinx. The Sphinx is pleased to see Kendra, but she's all like, cut the crap, you're a filthy traitor. She lets slip that she knows the Sphinx let a demonic dragon named Navarog out of the quiet box, and reminds herself to watch her tongue. The Sphinx explains the sitch. Ultimately, he believes magical beings should be free, while the Knights of the Dawn think they should remain contained. His cause is noble, and if a few casualties like Rex occur on his way to emancipation for all magical creatures, so be it. But that's not what he came to talk about. He wants to know where the Lost Mesa artifact is. First, he tries using his manipulative voice to coax it out of Kendra, but it doesn't work. He then brings in a pair of psychics, Darius and uh, Nanora... Uh, but they can't see into Kendra's mind, presumably because she's fairy kind. This does, however, make her the perfect candidate for an experiment. The Sphinx's henchman, Mr. Lich, brings in a crystal called the Oculus, which just so happens to be the artifact from Brazil. He tells Kendra that the Oculus uh, lets the user see everything everywhere, but if someone touches it involuntarily or doesn't have the right mind to use it, it will fry their brain. He wants to test Kendra's ability with it by having her describe to him Trask's man at the post office. Kendra is hesitant, but agrees to do it on her own when Mr. Lich tries to force her into it. She can immediately see in all directions in a way that is almost impossible for her to comprehend. She is able to zoom out and change perspective, but as she does so, she feels herself slipping away from her own mind. Then she sees a glowing face that tells her to release the crystal. She realizes it's the Fairy Queen and lets go of the Oculus. When the Sphinx asks how she was able to come back to herself, she lies and says she saw Grandma Sorison instead. 
The Sphinx remarks that he didn't know Grandma Sorensen was a clairvoyant. And Kendra, did you just put a target on your sweet nanny's back? Kendra tells the Sphinx that she won't use the Oculus again for fear it will drive her insane, and he concedes that, if nothing else, it was an interesting experiment. Sleep well, Kendra, because tomorrow the Sphinx is taking you elsewhere. Seth would be so disappointed in those paper airplanes that she couldn't right? do. He'd and be I, like, seriously? <laughs> and I like that Tarita comes in and is like, you know those aren't very good, and they're not flying that far, right? And she's like, yeah, I know, okay? <laughs> and Kendra goes, can we pretend that airplanes in the night sky are like <laughs> shooting stars? I can really use a wish right now, wish right now, wish right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, B.O.B. Bob! A flat earther. Is he really? He's a flat earther. What about Haley uh, no, Paramore? No, she's normal. She's a snowball? I said, no, she's normal. Okay. <laughs> you cut off partly, so I just heard snowball. <laughs> like, she's a snowball. <laughs> That's so stupid. One of the things that I like that Brandon Mull does fairly consistently is he takes situations where the characters are talking and, like, a lot of authors would just, like, kind of let the conversation go the way that they want it to in order to, like, reveal or hide information as necessary. But he will let a character be like, no, 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 stop with the BS, get to the point. Like, Kendra, it, like, just cuts through the Sphinx's, like, attempts at being all, like, fancy villain speech, and is like, uh-uh, I'm not doing it. We've been um, expecting you, Mr. Bond. And he's just like, no. Yeah, I like that he lets the characters do that a few times. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I have, like, nothing of substance to add, except I was picturing all the henchmen, regardless of how they are described in text, as Count Olaf's people in... <laughs> The Netflix adaptation of a series of unfortunate events. <laughs> the fairy queen tells her to release the crystal, and I wrote, drink the milk. Spit the milk out into the Sphinx's face. <laughs> <laughs> I am the Lactoblix. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> I'm the Lactoblix. I bought chocolate milk. No, I'm not the Lactoblix. It was lactose-free milk. I am a fake Lactoblix. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. I've got Lyme disease. I'm not good at this. What was the disease you asked about? Like, what are the symptoms of it? And I started describing you, and then, like, I got halfway through, and you're like, don't you do that to me! Oh, shoot. Yeah, I don't remember what it was. But, yeah, that was good. I don't remember what the disease yeah. was, but it, write in if you know, and if, if you write in and you're correct, then um, tell us what book you want us to cover, and we'll cover it, and then, like, name drop you in the beginning. This, in this uh, instance, snitches will not get stitches. They will get shout-outs. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter 7. Sabotage. It's sabotage! I can't stand it! I never planned it! <laughs> <laughs> I had written that in my synopsis, so I was really hoping we both went there. <laughs> Does this mean, like, everybody in the chapter just wears those bad mustaches they had in the music video? Yes. Yes. Okay. Go ahead. Oh my god, the Satters are in this chapter, so it'd be perfect! Uh, okay, go okay. ahead. <laughs> Seth is lounging on hammocks with the Satters, Doran and Newell, who are trying to butter him up for more batteries. <laughs> Seth won't accept stolen gold again, but he might be persuaded with treasures removed from Kurosawa's lair now that he's dead. The Satters asked, 
ask why Seth seems off, and he tells them about Kendra. Suddenly, Hugo the Golem runs up to tell Seth he missed him and wants to play, and I'm dying. I know, I pictured you going like, yes, and clapping, like, all through this. Hugo takes Seth to show him the treehouse he rebuilt and improved with Grandpa Stan's help. Make! Seth goes into the main house and hears a voice from the basement. Vanessa is out of the quiet box and needs to speak to the adults urgently. Seth brings his grandparents and Tanu down from a meeting, and Vanessa informs them that Maddox isn't really Maddox. He's a sting bulb, and when she explains how those work, Seth realizes Kendra might still be alive. The group confronts the sting bulb, who eventually concedes defeat. He mentions Illinois, which tips vanilla, which tips vanilla, vanilla off, which tips Vanessa off that Tarina is involved, and also says the real Maddox is in the Sphinx's custody. Gears are in motion, it seems. Vanessa wants to help since her years of service to the Sphinx were rewarded with a long stay in the quiet box, and his lack of morality has caused her to lose faith in his beliefs. Seth is actually given the opportunity to share his opinion on Vanessa's fate, which greatly flatters him. He decides that despite the risks, Vanessa should have a chance to prove herself an ally. Uh, Grandpa Stan decides to let her stay in a comfy cell instead of the quiet box and help them take down the Sphinx, but if she tries any of her sleep control magic on any of them, she will be executed. The group then goes to release poor Coulter, who had to take Vanessa's place in the quiet box. Yeah, alright. Go ahead. Uh, Hugo. <laughs> Make. I love him! He's so cute. I was just like, I for I forgot he was learning to talk. So yeah. I talking, I'm like, wait, when did this happen? I'm like, happy, happy, Seth. Oh, I I make his voice be uh, the character of Ludo from uh, Labyrinth. I don't know if you've seen it. I haven't seen it since would, I was like ten. You would love him. He's big and and he's like sour friend. And they're in a, like this bog of eternal stench, and he goes, "Smell bad." <laughs> He's so cute. I love him. He has like big Hugo energy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the only other thing that I noted in here, uh, besides like drawing three different hearts around Hugo's dialogue. <laughs> Uh, is at the start when Newell is trying to, he's, he's trying to convince Seth to, like, to keep their trades going, because he's like, if currency isn't exchanged, the economy stagnates. <laughs> and I wrote, invest in Seder coin. <laughs> <laughs> that was, like, the closest to a fight they've ever been in. Like, they got legit mad when he was screwing with them. I'm like, I don't know, you guys. And, and I was like, uh-oh, Seth, don't make them mad. They have hooves. They'll kick you. <laughs> It's inter- It's almost like Seth is almost starting to outgrow them. Yeah, I kind of got that vibe. Because they're not—they're not immortal, but they live for way longer, and so like they're just—they're just gonna be them. I have had friends like that where I grew up and they didn't really, and then it's like I don't hate you. We just have nothing in common. Chapter eight, knapsack. Ugh. What was that? I put the mic down and then. You said knapsack, and I just screamed because I'm so sick. (laughs) (laughs) In the middle of the night, someone slips a knapsack into Kendra's room. There is also an unsigned letter explaining an escape plan. The bag contains an extra-dimensional room and a sting bulb. She is to create a copy of herself, hide in the bag, and have the copy throw the bag out the window. Then she can exit the bag and escape. Well, it's not like things can get worse, so she stings herself and waits for the clone to grow. While it does, she investigates the room in the knapsack, which is mostly filled with junk. 
Once the clone emerges, Kendra asks a bit about its nature, then orders it to help her escape, and then spy for her as much as it can when the Sphinx takes it away. She then goes to Hayden and Cody, offering to take them away too. Hayden declines, but Cody comes with. The plan seems to go off without a hitch. As soon Kendra is outside the house, hiking into town, carrying a bag filled with junk and an old man. In town, she is found by Trask, who she doesn't know, but we do, and he says he received a tip that she would be wandering around tonight. He lets her into his car, and they head off to meet up with some other Knights of the Dawn and proceed to Fablehaven. They should really have a secret password, because she went along a little too willingly with Trask, who is someone she does not know. Yeah. She was also in that mode of, like, I don't see how things could get worse. <laughs> um... Am I reading too much into it? Because I, like, I kind of got some, like, Hayden Cody vibes. Like, I don't know. I thought they might be, like, sweet on each other. No, I didn't pick up on that. But okay. if you want it to be there, it can be there. I don't know. I was too busy being stressed out by everything to pick up okay. to pick up on any, like, gay vibes. Even though I'm usually all for the gay vibes. And, yeah. like, I It was just, like, the fact that they, like, they buddied up and we, like, none of the other ones seemed to. And then, like, when she offers to, like, take them with. One of them, like, is, like, I'm only going if the other one goes. But then, like, kind of sadly changes their mind and decides to stay behind and... I don't know, it it just, it I, it gave me, like, un- unrequited vibe, uh, love vibes, but mm. I don't know. Okay, uh, chapter nine, Hall of Dread. Ba-ba-ba! <laughs> there we go. Seth is playing football in the snow with Hugo and the satyrs when Kendra, Ward, and Coulter arrive. Seth is so relieved to have his sister back that some of his mischievous nature, like encouraging the satyr Verl to flirt with Kendra, returns. Kendra catches the group up on her adventure and in turn learns that Vanessa contacted an anonymous inside agent with the Evening Star to help Kendra escape. Furthermore, the knapsack's magic is incredibly rare, meaning someone went through a lot of trouble to free her. With Kendra back, it's time to visit the Hall of Dread and learn about the two remaining artifacts, one of which grants immortality and the other is likely a sort of teleportation device. The Hall of Dread is lined with cells containing very dark creatures, and as they head deeper, Seth hears voices that nobody else does. He makes contact with one who asks him to free them, and in exchange they will serve Seth. Seth tells everyone else what's up, and Grandpa is like, That demon's been mute for a hundred years! <laughs> but seriously, Seth should probably get out of here, and Seth for once agrees. Grandpa and Kendra head into the vault at the end of the hall, which is filled with priceless artifacts. They find Patton's message, which says that the fourth artifact, the Translocator, is found in a preserve in Australia, but to access the vault, they have to recover a tree... a a tree. They have to recover a key from a forbidden dragon sanctuary called Worm Roost. They decide that's probably better security than they could manage, and decide to leave it alone been really funny if they go back and then what Patton wrote on the ceiling was like, you're gay and that's it. And they're like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> Does it say anything else? Um, he just drew a dick. <laughs> so stupid. That's so stupid. See, I like if the Satters were in charge of this kind of thing, they would totally send you on something stupid. Like if you um, if you want to know more about the treasure, bring bring 120 C cell batteries into the woods. <laughs> okay, um, and it's good that Seth is showing maturity by being like, yeah, those voices are no bueno. I'm just gonna go upstairs now. Um, when they were talking about the remaining artifacts and one of them granting some sort of power over space, I was like, that kind of sounds like the bag. 
Then they said it was likely a teleporter, and I was like, the TARDIS? either it's either it's not the bag, or it's like it's to throw us off the scent. But like that's sort of similar magic. It's a space that is separate. I don't know. But I do like that Grandpa's like, you should probably go back upstairs. And Seth is like, yeah, you're right. And <laughs> Grandpa just blinks and is like, I, I am. I am. You, you agree? You fight. Because when has Seth ever been like, yeah, that's sound advice. <laughs> you fight me on brushing your teeth. Are you sure you want to do this? And I love that it takes a while. Like he, he doesn't like wait to the a while to say anything from the start he's like what's that who's that and everyone just like quit fucking around and he's like i'm right. not <laughs> right one time it, I'm yeah not. <laughs> watching both him not totally mature definitely but start to figure out that there's kind of a time and a place for some things and then but then it's also watching the rest of the group grow to be like oh no he's recognizing that so we should start to take him a bit more seriously as well Okay. Uh, chapter 10? Chapter 10. Hotel. Seth confides in Grandpa that he's conflicted about hearing the evil voices. On the one hand, he knows they're no good, but on the other, he's still curious. He wonders if he's turning evil since he is immune to magical fear and can see and hear dark creatures. Grandpa insists that having these abilities doesn't make him bad, especially since Seth is actually thinking about the consequences. AKA, is our choices far more than our abilities. He then tells Seth that since tomorrow is the winter solstice, he thinks it would be best to have the kids stay at a hotel just in case the Evening Star attacks Fablehaven while its security is compromised during the night festival. It's a risk having them off-premises, but it's likely the better option. Meanwhile, Grandma and Kendra visit Vanessa, who wants to apologize to Kendra and talk over what she's gone through. Vanessa reveals that before being known as the Sphinx, the head of the Evening Star was named Rhodes, with the title of Lodestar. Vanessa vows to keep spying on behalf of the Knights of the Dawn, and says she has more information that she will reveal if it becomes necessary. Until then, it's safer if only she knows. That night, Kendra, Seth, Grandma, Tanu, and Warren head to a hotel, but are quickly attacked by a goblin only Seth can see. They manage to sedate it, but an oversized wolf and gargoyle quickly follow. Seth finds a bracelet on the goblin that seems to cause invisibility, but it destroys itself shortly after Seth tries it on. After taking down the creatures, they decide it's probably best they go somewhere else. I mean, that's what you get for picking a best Western. Am I right? Yeah, well, this wouldn't happen at La Quinta. <laughs> okay, alright, so in the hotel chapter, we get a picture of, like, the monsters that are attacking, and Grandma in the hallway. That is not how I picture the Grandma. They, it was, like, full, like, white-haired, curly, little glasses, like, all that crap. Yeah. That's so not how I pictured her. I picture her with, like, longer, like, graying hair, like, back in a braid. With, like, more like a Midwestern farmhouse kind of kind of oh, woman. Oh, I got you. So yeah. I was just like, this shit is the... No, that's not my roof. That's not how, <laughs> not how I... <laughs> Hashtag not my roof. Not my roof. That's not how I pictured her. I mean, the other illustrations in this, I feel like, totally nailed it. Particularly one that contributed to my laughing fit. But, like, no, not feeling it. I did not like that illustration. That's not my roof. Did they ever explicitly mention relocating Cody anywhere? Because if they didn't, is he still in the back? <laughs> they do. Yeah, they said there's a place for uh, people to go who are like victims of magical maladies, like this kind of thing. Okay. Where you can go. Okay. And when they said, oh, so they went to Madame Malkin's. So when they said that, I kind of pictured the waiting room in Beetlejuice. Where have you ever seen Beetlejuice? 
I saw half of it. Okay, well, whatever half you saw, there's a part where they're like in the afterlife and they want to talk to somebody about like their afterlife because they don't know what to do. And they're in this waiting right. room with all these other dead people that all look weird. There's like a big dude with like a bib on with a big bone in his neck. And that's like the point where he choked and died. And like another guy is like in like scuba gear with like a fish attached to his leg. And just that's just what I'm picturing this home looking like. Because everybody <laughs> is like, I've got like a horn coming out of my head now because of magic. I can't get a job. It's bumming me out. <laughs> Uh, I felt like Grandma was maybe being a little bit too stubborn with the whole Vanessa thing. Like, I get being skeptical, but she was just always hardlining, like, no, never for anything, even when it's like, okay, but we have to take some risks now because, like, the Sphinx is moving and we need all the help we can get. Well, I think it's also that uh, I don't think she liked Vanessa anyway. Yeah. So it was just all like, well... I knew that you pretty women are an issue who use your wiles and your milk powers to <laughs> make everyone fall in love with you. She's not a she's a narcoblix. That's something different. I mean, she smokes yeah. cigarettes. <laughs> That'd be a nectoblix. You're bad at this. She's a narcoblix. She's really into watching that Netflix series. Yeah, she's like stalks Pedro Pascal. <laughs> But she's not into the Mandalorian, so don't even get her started on it. Yeah, she much prefers the fiddle. Oh, I get it. It's a stringed instrument joke. <laughs> that one's for you, Ben. Chapter 11. Bankruptcy. Gate Crasher. Thank yes. you. Yes. I really want us to read a book that ends on, like, chapter 10, and at the end you're like, Chapter 11, Bankruptcy! Okay, we can end. <laughs> <laughs> After spending the night in a different hotel, the group returns to Fablehaven. There would be Goblin Assassin in tow. At the entrance to Fablehaven, they come across a crashed car being driven by a familiar face. It's Kendra Stingbulb. She relays the story of how she got here, which involves convincing a sweet old lady to help her escape from the Sphinx, and then stealing the woman's car. But the point of the matter is this. The Sphinx was able to use the Oculus himself, and has plans to send Navarog into the Wormer's Dragon Sanctuary to retrieve the key to the Translocator's Vault. Grandpa vows to find and repay the woman whose car the Stingbulb totaled, and everyone heads inside. Seth suggests that they put the Stingbulb in the quiet box, as the stasis will prevent her from dying in a day or two like she normally would. They agree to run it by her. In the meantime, they have to deal with the fact that the Sphinx may be able to get a first unicorn horn, which is kind of like a human baby tooth, but prettier. <laughs> this is necessary to retrieve the translocator, and the only one they know of for sure is in Fablehaven. Specifically, it's cherished by the centaurs as a gift from Patton. Grandpa decides to pay them a visit, which he is allowed to do once per year, and ask to borrow the horn. If they say no, this will serve as a recon mission so they can swipe it, because either way, they have to get the translocator before the Sphinx does. Seth is bummed he can't come alone since he insulted the centaurs last book, and wishes his past mistakes didn't keep messing up his future options. He's so close to getting it. <laughs> One thing that I'm realizing now about the plot of this book is that it's kind of like a double MacGuffin because they're trying to get a key so that they can get a key so they can get the thing. Yo, dog, I heard you need a key to get your key to get to the key. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter 12. Grunhold. That's, that sounds like a... I don't know. That sounds like a part of the body. <laughs> You're thinking bunghole. Seth meets with Newland Doran, who have a new proposition for him. 
he doesn't like the idea of taking things from Fablehaven anymore, but maybe he could be interested in this really cool breastplate that he could use while he's here. They haggle back and forth and settle on 120C batteries when Seth next goes shopping, but he can have the breastplate now. Verl then pops in with a charcoal drawing of Kendra, his muse, which he wants Seth to deliver to her. Seth also hears a voice calling out to him, but nobody else hears it. Meanwhile, Grandpa and Grandma Sorensen, Tanu, Coulter, and Kendra head into Centaur territory. They are guided to an area called Grunhold, which consists of a ring of standing stones and a hill topped with a sort of meeting room. There, they speak with Greymane, head of the Centaurs. He asks Kendra to tell the story of how Broadhoof died saving Fablehaven in the last book. Then, Grandpa gets to the point. They need the first unicorn horn, which the Centaurs call the Soul of Grunhold. That ain't happening, however. The centaurs won't let it go, and the magic of the horn prevents it from being stolen. It can only be given or found. Greymane explains that it is well protected by a maze of invisible walls, plus a mountain troll. Well, that sounds safe enough, I suppose. Time to head back. On the way out, Kendra recognizes a fairy from their last adventure. The fairy tells Kendra she knows how to get into the maze. Its entrance lies below one of the standing stones, but the stones move on their own a bit before dawn, leaving the entrance wide open. When they're out of centaur territory... Kendra informs the others. This is good information, but it seems like they're still better off finding a different horn to use. Looks like it's a race against the Sphinx to find one. They go and meet with the centaurs, and Grandpa is addressing them by name, and he's like, Cloudwing, Stormbrow, Quickstride, Bloodthorn, I just wrote, Bramble Pelt! <laughs> yeah, it, it was definitely giving me warrior cat vibes. Um... Speaking of which, do you, want, do you want to tell the listeners a bit about what you texted me yeah so i saw on tumblr that there's actually maybe like six years ago or so children were role-playing warrior cats in uh reviews for books on barnesandnoble.com it was this sub uh genre of whatever the hell this is was uh brought to our attention because uh somebody was like hey i was just looking at the reviews for hamlet and i found this and this was something children did. And I don't understand why. Probably, you know what? This was around the fall of, like, LiveJournal. So if LiveJournal had still existed, there would have been a place for them to roleplay as Warrior Cats. And I guess as a child, you can't really own your own web space. So you, you make use do. what you can. I, and I guess, I don't know, I guess roleplaying on Tumblr is awkward. Um, it's just a system of blogging and reblogging and... It looks pretty messy. I guess the only other option was barnesandnoble.com. <laughs> <laughs> oh, children. I, I, oh, Sarah Zed, we're waiting for the video about that. Can you explain this? <sighs> All right. Okay. Let's move on. Chapter 13, Shadow Charmer. Seth sneaks out in the night. He is convinced that the voice he heard is the demon Granola calling to him from his cave. Granola helped him defeat the Shadow Plague last summer, so he figures visiting the demon should be safe, right? As he crosses the yard, he is stopped by Hugo, under orders to guard the house. Seth convinces Hugo that he needs to do this in order to save everyone, and Hugo eventually agrees to disobey his current command to help Seth reach Granola safely. They head to the cave, and the dying demon confirms Seth's suspicions. He wants to know how Seth's abilities are coming along. It seems that his proximity to the Revenant Nail both when he removed it and later when it was destroyed, has gifted him with the abilities of a Shadow Charmer, someone who can align themselves with dark creatures and utilize some of their powers. These powers, seeing invisible things, befriending dark creatures, makes Seth the perfect person to retrieve the Unicorn Horn. Seth is afraid 
becoming a shadow charmer will make him evil, but Granola explains that all it does is give him tools. It's up to him how he uses them. To help Seth navigate the next part of his journey as a shadow charmer, Granola has summoned Nero the Troll. Nero explains that Seth should immediately head to Grunold and retrieve the horn tonight. To do so, he must navigate the maze, then befriend the mountain troll, and convince it he is playing a trick by replacing the horn with a banana. Mountain trolls love pranks. Now let's get to work. You're a Um, shadow charmer, Seth, is what I have in my notes. Speaking of Granola and Kurosawa, there was only one reference to Bathmat. I only had to fix one instance in this book. (laughs) Chapter 14, Heart and Soul. Hugo takes Seth and Nero to the edge of the marsh, and from there Nero guides Seth on a raft into centaur territory. They dodge a fog giant on the way in, and once they arrive at the other shore, Seth is on his own. Using his ability to be hidden by shadows, he slowly makes his way to the monolith hiding the entrance to the maze. He has a couple close calls, but makes it in just as some other centaurs with wheelbarrows of food for the mountain troll arrive. Realizing there isn't enough shadow in the maze to hide him, Seth ducks inside one of the wheelbarrows and hitches a ride through. He tries to memorize their path through the maze, but loses track. Uh, Once through, Seth introduces himself to the troll, Udnar, and claims to be Navarog the Trickster. He explains his prank, and Udnar thinks it's the funniest thing ever. He makes sure Seth plans to return the horn after a few days, then lets Seth make the swap. Uh, Seth tells Udnar not to mention helping him if the centaurs ask. Seth uses some trial and error to make it back through the maze, and slips out just as the monolith returns to position. He sneaks back to Nero's raft, and Nero returns Seth to Hugo. Seth and Hugo then race back to the house as horns blow in the centaur lands, confirming they're aware of the missing horn. Yeah, this is where I laughed. This is the description of the troll laughing. Um, made me laugh really hard, and then the illustration's pretty great, because Seth is standing there holding a banana going like, Huh? Huh? And then the troll, sure enough, has his mouth over his his mouth mouth no his hands over his mouth like <laughs> and I could I couldn't handle it I just start laughing I loved it yes he's all like it turn it with a banana and he like oh, they know like banana <laughs> he knows that banana is S tier comedy <laughs> I like Seth asking Nero like where did you get a banana from. <laughs> And he's just like, the setters put their beaks in a lot of things. <laughs> Was it ever explained where the centaurs get all of this food? It's like wheelbarrows and wheelbarrows of it. How often are they feeding this guy? It's lots of pigs. Where are they? <laughs> I don't know where they're getting so many pigs. Where are they getting so many pigs? <laughs> and how often do they feed this thing? Uh, it seems like pretty often, considering the fact that he, like, eats the pigs pretty much whole. The thing is, though, with, like, creatures that are really big, usually they just need, like, one huge meal, and then they're good for a while. So it just, I don't know. I, w- I was like, where are they getting this? And how is Seth not, okay, in a wheelbarrow full of dead pigs, and he's not throwing up? Yeah, I, I don't like I would that. be. Chapter 15. Horns. Seth and Hugo return to the house with everyone very mad at Seth for sneaking out and disrupting the centaurs. Grandpa is fuming and tells Seth he will spend the rest of his time here grounded in one of the dungeon cells, but then Seth produces the unicorn horn and everyone shuts up. They go inside and talk things out a bit more. Grandpa and Grandma still think Seth should be punished for taking such a risk, but Seth is like, this was literally the most thought out thing I've ever done and it might save the world. And I have never been more on Seth's side. (laughs) 
He also says he should be included on the trip to Worm Roost, not just because he is a Shadow Charmer, but also because the magic of the horn prevents anyone else from taking it from him without his permission. Before anything can be decided, the centaurs come and accuse the group of taking the horn. Grandpa Stan is an impressive actor and is able to give them just enough plausible deniability that the centaurs leave, but they're still keeping an eye on the humans. Kendra visits Seth in his room and asks to touch the horn for a minute. She wonders why Seth wants to go on such a dangerous mission, and he's having a hard time understanding it himself. Is it just because dragons are cool, or is it because he honestly thinks it's the best way to save the world? Also, Kendra, aren't you excited that Gavin might come with them? Yeah, I was like, I'm so confused. Why am I agreeing with Seth? (laughs) Why am I like, yeah, Seth is on the right track here. I, on one hand, though, I was like, I did write, like, Seth actually has the nerve to be surprised when his grandpa says he's not going to Worm Roost. Because, of course, they're not going to let, he's a 13-year-old kid. Because I was just like, I see that. But I also see that he's, like, has skills no one else has, and that would probably come in handy. And it's not like they're sending him by himself. He'd be with everybody. And they sent Kendra by herself to Lost Mesa, but Warren was with her. So, yeah, I don't know. I get that they're concerned plus he's the one kid that their kids still have because <laughs> they all think Kendra's dead so if they're like well you know how we had Seth stay with us right after the funeral so funny story he died <laughs> remember when you had two kids and then you just had one so we're gonna we're well... gonna climb out this window now could you shut it after us please <laughs> <laughs> So I get why they're particularly being careful with him. But he also makes good points saying that like everything they've been doing so far is reactionary and the society is like always like a few steps ahead of them and it's time to be more proactive. And I'm just like, oh shit, he's making good points. I don't, yeah, I don't no, like agreeing like... with him. <laughs> I think that's, oh, I also like that like, all this is going on with them blowing the horns and blah, and everyone like in a panic, like what's happening? What's happening? And then towards the end of it is when Dale wakes up. Like, is he on like super duper heavy medication? <laughs> and then he comes in like, what's going on? And the grandma's like, go out on the porch with Stan, just react to everything that happens. So he's like super authentic for like, we had no idea what happened to your horn. Didn't we just warn you that someone was after it? And they're like, yeah, we just told you where it was. And they're like, how could we have done that? We're not that good. And he's like, oh, you got me there. We're stupid. We're dumb. It's sad. <laughs> uh, it also, but I was picturing the grandpa's acting as, did you ever see the movie Easy A? Yeah, yes. Stanley Tucci going, what? Who told you? <laughs> what I was picturing. <laughs> Can Stanley Tucci play Grandpa Stan in the movie adaptation of these how old is Stanley Tucci? I think he could feasibly play a grandpa. I mean, the grandkids are still pretty young, so they wouldn't they wouldn't yeah. have to be super old. Anybody that's over like fifty five could reasonably. I want Stanley Tucci as as grandpa as Grandpa Stan, and I want uh, Catherine O'Hara playing Grandma Grandma Ruth, but she has to play it like Moira Rose from Shit's Creek. Chapter sixteen. Moving out. Kendra, Warren, and Tanu are chosen as the three members of Fablehaven to go to Wormroost. But first, it's Christmas! Veril stops by with a present for Kendra, a three-foot statuette of herself in a toga. It's impressive and sweet, but she reminds him that she's only 15. He agrees that their love could never be, so he will just appreciate her from afar. Still yuck. 
As the trio prepares to head out, Kendra finds a present from Seth, the adamant breastplate he got from the satyrs. There's also a note explaining that he won't be there to say goodbye because he's still bummed out about being left out, uh, but he wishes Kendra good luck. The trio flies to Montana and meets up with the rest of the strike force, Gavin, Trask, Dugan, and Mara. Hey. Hey. We also meet Aaron Stone, the helicopter pilot, who will take the group to Wormers proper. Aaron Stone is a very good name for a helicopter pilot. I am picturing him with, like, the big shades. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> in the hat. And like the... Yeah, in the shorts. <laughs> Trask is acting as leader and suggests the group introduces themselves and their abilities in a direct and honest manner as he believes this is a better way to do business than the Sphinx's previous method of secrets and mistrust among the Knights of the Dawn. We mostly know everyone here, but we get confirmation Gavin is a dragon brother, which is the dragon equivalent of being fairy kind, sharing languages, resisting their magic, and so on. Trask reminds everyone how dangerous the mission will be, then excuses everyone to bed. Cut to the inside of the transdimensional knapsack where Seth has stowed away on the trip. Turns out Warren agreed that Seth would be useful and intentionally left the bag accessible <laughs> to Seth so he could sneak in. Also present are Mendigo and a newcomer. Bubda the Hermit Troll, hey. who has been living in the bag for a very long time. Bubda just wants peace and quiet and agrees to leave Seth alone if Seth does the same for him. Before going to sleep, Seth tells Mendigo to keep an eye on Bubda and subdue him if he gets too close. All right. This is what cemented Bubda being Mara, being me. This is when he says, Bubda likes to be alone. Other people are a pain. You're other people, Seth. Better than some, maybe better than most. But no people is best. And I was like, Bubda gets it. <laughs> <laughs> you could have been talking to me there. Yeah, I think, I don't know, wasn't this episode one, how we introduced ourselves? <laughs> you're better than most people, but I'd prefer you weren't here. And you're like, cool, thanks. Thanks for listening to the podcast. <laughs> well, it. see, what's crazy is that after that, we stopped actually having conversations when we record we're actually recording our parts separately and they just line up really That'd well be really eerie <laughs> especially since we already know how each of us is going to react to various things so all during hugo's cuteness of like make showing the treehouse i was just like oh josh is clapping <laughs> <laughs> he dropped the book and clapped delightedly yeah. just like i guess we introduced I, I, bubda and you're like yes yeah <laughs> I know this person. <laughs> and I gotta tell you, it was fun to write Mandango in my no notes again, because I never write that character's name correctly. Ever. <laughs> it's in all caps every time. Mandango. I really like that Ward is like, Duh, Seth, I'm gonna be honest, I think you might be needed here, so I'ma leave the bag and the car will be on Boy, the Boy, I hope uh... no one goes in this knapsack I've left open. <laughs> Hey, guys, let's all look away from the car for a while. And they're all just staring at him. Don't you have a window to climb out of? <laughs> <laughs> Chapter 17. Worm Roost. Kendra uses her ability to see through distractor spells to guide Aaron's flight towards Worm Roost. Once they land, she then has to guide the group to the entrance itself, fighting the magic that makes her companions believe they should turn back. They eventually arrive safely and everyone's mind's clear. They meet a dragon named Camerat that screens them before they continue into the sanctuary. Only Gavin, Mara, Trask, and Kendra are able to speak in Camerat's presence. 
But Kendra, unlike the other three, is otherwise paralyzed. Camerat has some sort of truth serum breath or something, which forces Trask to explain some of their mission. Their explanation is good enough to gain them access to Blackwell Keep, the nearby castle where the caretaker Agad lives. They meet a Minotaur, an Elsatar, which is a centaur with a moose body, and Simran, a sort of snake person. They are then taken to meet Agad, the wizened caretaker. When they explain that they need to visit Patton's grave in the sanctuary to get information on the key, Agad responds with contempt for Patton, who stole a dragon's egg from the sanctuary. Agad then asks to speak to Kendra in private. He reveals that he is a wizard, which means he was once a dragon but took permanent human form for increased magic power. Furthermore, he knows Patton didn't die in Wormroost. In fact, he was the one who asked Patton to take the egg, as the mother Nafia was known to eat her young. Patton actually told Agad that someday Kendra would come looking for the key, and that she would need to read the markings on his fake gravestone to do so. Agad has to pretend to hate Patton for the sake of the dragons, and ask Kendra not to tell anyone he's lying about that part. He then tells Kendra he will give her and three companions of her choosing advice on what to do tomorrow, but tonight she should make a point to sneak to the gravestone and figure out what message is hidden there. I think it's gross he eats with his hands. I don't like it. It's like a... Boromir's dad's name. Denethor. Yes. Yeah, it keeps like, then he dips his hand in, into like a little little bowl and then wipes his fingers. I'm like, dude, get a fork. Um, chapter, chapter 18. Chapter Blackwell Keep. Seth is getting bored of Yahtzee. <laughs> and either way, Bubda keeps winning. Warren comes down to check on Seth, who asks if he should make his presence known yet. Warren says it might be best to keep him secret a while longer so he can be their emergency reinforcements. Seth reluctantly agrees. Meanwhile, Kendra, Gavin, and Trask dig up Pat's fake grave to find the hidden message left for Kendra. The key to the Worm Roost Vault is an iron egg hidden inside the secret dragon temple. Or it's not the key of the Worm Roost Vault, it's the Australia Vault. Yeah, yeah, whatever. yeah. More information can be found at Worm Roost's Fairy Queen's I thought you were going to say wormroost.com. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Ask your parents' permission before going online. <laughs> and for going into dangerous dragon sanctuaries. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least they have their next destination. That night, Seth hears voices calling out to him and sneaks out of the bag to investigate. He finds a room with a dark hole in the center, a massive chain attached to the wall, and voices calling from the depths of the hole. They offer Seth whatever he wants as long as he drops the chain into the hole so they can escape. Seth knows it's a trick, but before he can do anything else, Agate arrives. He was waiting for Seth to find this room. Patton warned him about Seth. The spirits in the hole, the Black Well, are very dangerous, and even Agad has only used them a couple times. He notices that Seth gives off noble vibes, in contrast to the evil ones of most Shadewalkers. Agad agrees to keep Seth's presence here a secret, as long as Seth agrees never to visit the Black Well again. The next day, Kendra, Tanu, Gavin, and Trask are briefed by Agad. He tells them that the Fairy Queen's shrine is on Mount Stormcrag, which happens to be the domain of a powerful and territorial sky giant slash sorcerer named Thronus. The other mountain in the sanctuary, Moonfang, is where Celebrant the Dragon King lives, and that area is not much better. Thronus has only one real weakness, a collar which will choke him if he tells a lie. Uh, everyone sure hopes no conflict will occur, but come on, there's still 200 pages left. Things are defo going pear-shaped. <laughs> Tanu asks to trade for some new potion ingredients while Trask gets permission to bring the others to the map room to brief them on their route. Looks like the quest will soon be underway. 
I wasn't sure why he was like, only bring three friends. And then afterwards, they're like, can we tell the others exactly what you said? And he's like, yes. It just seemed like an unnecessary step. Well, I'm curious why he didn't tell them about a certain twist that he probably should have seen that comes up later. And I'm like, well, wait, why didn't he say anything? He should have known. Yeah. I don't know how but that... But I'm wondering if that happened because he, like, talks to Kendra and was like, so, like, you're here willingly, right? Like, all these guys, your buds? She goes, yeah, they're my friends. So maybe that's why he didn't say anything, because, like, oh, she must know. That's the only right. explanation I had, because otherwise I was just like, what a fuck face not saying anything. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter 19, Dragon Tamer. The group heads into Wormers proper to find the Fairy Queen Shrine. They see a variety of creatures on the way, including hawk bears and griffins. The group eventually stops for lunch, and when they do, they're attacked by a herd of winged stags called peritons. Chaos ensues, throwing the group into such disarray it takes a few minutes to realize they aren't being attacked. The peritons are fleeing from a massive blue dragon, which may have noticed the humans. Mara is quickly able to tame a periton long enough for her and Kendra to flee on it, taking the magic knapsack with them. The periton can't fly too well with them both, however, so Mara disembarks and lets Kendra get some more distance. Despite this, the dragon catches up to Kendra, and she soon finds herself alone and about to be dinner. She tries to speak to the dragon, whose name is Nafia, uh, but she is paralyzed. Seth, having heard the commotion from the bag, decides it's time to make his presence known. They hold hands, and with their powers combined, the Sorensons are able to break Nafia's hold on them and survive long enough for Gavin to arrive. He speaks draconic to Nafia and invokes his status as a dragon brother to convince her to let them go. Nafia leaves, and Gavin reports that Tanu and Warren were injured but should be okay. Time to regroup. Um, so, my brain didn't want to say Peritons, so I said Peloton every single time. So, like, the Pelotons are attacking. So it's, like, all these really intense, like, bicycling and hiking guys who are like, all right, lift those knees. <laughs> so that's who they should cast in the movie. And just have them wear, like, fake reindeer antlers from Perfect. Christmas. Love it. Chapter 20. Griffins. They regroup. Tanu's doing all right, but Warren was gored by a periton and will need to recover in the knapsack. Furthermore, he will need to keep a hold of the unicorn horn, which doesn't heal per se, but will prevent infection and other toxins. Gavin asks about the specifics of how Seth and Kendra were able to work together to overcome Nafia's dragon magic, and it's basically that Seth counteracted Kendra's fear while Kendra cleared Seth's mind, so they were both basically back to normal. After accepting that Seth is part of the mission, the group proceeds to sidestep Cleft, a narrow tunnel where they will make camp for the night. At camp, they are visited by a beautiful woman that reveals herself to be Nafia, now called Nissa in human form. She tells them that Navarog has been spotted at the gate to the sanctuary, so they better move quickly. Furthermore, she finds herself missing human interaction and its novelties and asks them to join the group, because she knows the sanctuary better than they do, and also because she finds Gavin cute. They politely decline, because their end goal is the vault, which no dragon will let them into, and she would surely kill them once she learned of their destination. The next day, they pass through Sidestep Cleft and encounter a dwarf riding a griffin. The dwarf is a servant of Thronus and asks them to lay down their weapons and come with him. Trask declines and suddenly they are besieged by griffins. Trask, Tanu, and Dugan are quickly whisked away. Gavin shoves Kendra into the knapsack, but before Seth can get in, a griffin seizes him. He tells Mendigo to take the bag and keep Kendra safe, then has no choice but to be carried along with his other companions up to the home of Thronus the Giant. Inside the bag, Kendra watches Mendigo leave the bag in a small crevice, and get carried away by Griffins himself. 
He tries to leave the bag, but there's not enough space for her outside it. She and Warren are safe in the bag, but totally trapped. Yeah, so that that uh, Nissa scene was pretty random, um, but it uh, it all makes sense later. Uh, anyway, I don't really have anything to add. The sidestep cleft, how it gets like super duper narrow. Like I'm not claustrophobic, but it does remind me of a horror manga called uh, Sidestep Cleft. The Secret of Amagar. No, the Secret of Amagara Fault. Amagara um, Fault. <laughs> which is like the worst thing ever. You might have seen images from it on the internet before. But it's basically, like, there's a fault line that appears, and people feel, the like, the need to go visit it. And when they do, they find all these holes in the wall, and each hole is shaped like a person. And you find the one that perfectly fits you, and then you are compelled to go into it and keep going. And the way it's shaped, you can't back out. Your only choice is to keep going. And then eventually they find, like, where the holes exit, and the holes, like, twist and warp, and they see the bodies coming through, and they're, like, compelled to keep walking, even though they've been, like, contorted into, like, circles. I don't like this. It's horrifying, but it's also very, very, very good. Chapter 21. Giant Problem. (laughs) Atop the mountain, the dwarf, whose name is Zogo, makes the humans lay down their weapons. Mendigo is also dropped off by more griffins. The giant Thronus appears and brings the group inside. He demands to know why they are in his territory, but is disappointed by Trask's vague answers and decides they might be better off baked into a pie. Seth intervenes and Thronus is intrigued by his Shadow Charmer status. Seth tells the truth, that they're heading to the Dragon's Vault, and this is very interesting to the giant. They stand little chance of getting through since it's protected by three guardians, starting with a hydra named Hespera. The reason the dragons are so protective of the vault is because inside are the sage's gauntlets, which, if worn by a human, can exert control over any and all dragons. Of course, they are of no use to a giant, who could never wear them. There are, however, a few figurines made of precious materials that Thronus would like. In exchange for returning these items to him, Thronus will supply the humans with equipment necessary to get through the vault safely. And they know he will uphold his end of the bargain because he is wearing a magical choker put on him by Agad, which prevents him from lying. In order to make sure he isn't swindled by the humans, Thronus will also be putting similar collars on them until they return with his figurines. Since anything is better than instant death, Trask agrees to these terms for the group. Okay, I don't like the collar thing because it reminds me too much of that bank robbery where this man claimed he'd been abducted and they put, like, this bomb collar vest thing on him, and he had to go into the bank and get, like, all this money, and if he didn't do it, then they'd activate the bomb, and then it ended with, like, him on the ground with the police surrounding him, and then time ran out on the thing, and it exploded, and he was killed. So that's what I kept thinking this whole thing, a whole time, and I'm like, wait, what year did this happen, and when did Brandon Mole write this? Because this feels uncomfortable. When did that I don't happen? remember. They made a documentary about it and put it on Netflix. And they also made a comedy movie with like Jesse Eisenberg in it. Like that was kind of based on it because it was like a guy goes to deliver pizza at a mm-hmm. at a mm-hmm. location mm-hmm. at a and then he's like jumped. I know what what movie you're referring to. Uh Okay, how do I Google this? Oh, there it is. It happened in 2003. Oof. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, that collar thing, I, I did not like that. Yeah, between that and, like, Verl being a really creepy, milady kind of incel-seeming dude, I just thought there were a couple too many missteps in this one. 
I mean, he was due because like the last three books had been like chef kiss perfection. So it's all like kind of disappointing, but oh well. Chapter 22, Rextus. Kendra and Warren play Bubda at Yahtzee in order to get him to climb out of the knapsack and move it since he's smaller than them. Uh, once that's done, Kendra climbs out, takes the bag, and begins walking through the gorge they're stuck in. Warren had originally suggested they just move the bag and stay hidden, but Kendra knows they don't have enough time and need to keep moving forward with the mission. Unfortunately, the gorge ends in a box canyon, and there's no way out. Kendra sits down and cries, but hears a kind voice from behind her. She turns and sees a beautiful silvery dragon, smaller than any she has seen. He introduces himself as Raxtus and explains that he has been keeping an eye on the group since they arrived. Kendra asks how it's possible that he was watching without them noticing, and also, why does he talk different from the other big spoopy dragons? Well, before Raxtus was born, a cockatrice got into the nest and ate all of the eggs but his, but fairies swooped in and saved his egg, and he was hatched via fairy magic at one of the fairy queen's shrines. This gave him some unique magic, like invisibility, and being able to make things grow using his breath, but also kept him small and made him a social outcast. Oh, and to make things more awkward, his dad is Celebrant the Just, King of Dragons, and his two half-brothers run the other secret dragon sanctuaries while he's basically been disowned by the family. He spends much of his time elsewhere visiting Fairy Queen shrines, which he can apparently teleport between, and watching movies at the drive-in. He wants to be a big action hero, but is cowardly. And he can't even escape persecution in human form because his human form is just a boy fairy. Since Kendra comes from Fablehaven, Raxtus asks if she knows Shiara. Kendra says yes, she's her favorite. And it turns out Shiara is Raxtus's foster mom. But anyways, back to the problem at hand. Raxtus could fly Kendra and the bag to the Fairy Queen's shrine if she wants. First, she brings out Warren so they can try healing him with Raxtus's breath. It only makes his hair and beard long. Uh, he's still out of commission. But yes, Kendra would love a ride, so Warren gets back in the bag and Raxus takes off, holding Kendra, who is holding the bag. Um, Do you love Raxus? I wanted to love him, but uh, I'm just like, at first I was like, oh, oh, he's so cute. But then like he keeps going with like the self-hatred thing and the toxic masculinity or, I don't know, toxic dragulinity. And I'm just like, okay, dude, we get it. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Just stop. Because he's just like, I would, but I'm a coward. I don't know why I'm giving him Butter's voice from South Park. She did say he had, like, a teenage boy kind of voice, but, like, nicer. <laughs> I don't love Rextus. I do enjoy him, but I do love the thing at the very yeah, end. Yeah, me too. Uh, it's very it's good. Very good. Uh, she's like, okay, so you're going to fly me, but how do we do this? Should I get on your back? And he says, no, I'm too spiny and sharp. You'd need a saddle. Not that any dragon worth a nickel would wear a saddle. They would die of shame. But shame is where I live. I own the whole neighborhood. Yeah, see, he kept saying stuff like that, and I was like, eventually, I was like, shut up. You know, I couldn't take it anymore, because I'm just like, enough with the self-loathing, especially since you sound like a dream of a dragon that I would just, if I had to be a dragon, I'd want all of those powers. Like, that's the dragon I'd want to be. And that's like the the pretty action figure I'd want and like put on my shelf and be like, I have a Raxtus. Isn't he cute? His breath will make your hair grow long. Isn't that nice? There's something about the fact that, even though it's only a few lines, Brandon Mould devotes an entire paragraph at the start to talking about Yahtzee strategy, and like, <laughs> yes. how and why Bubda lost, and I'm like, I love this for some real dumb reason. Um, I'm gonna say right now that I'm not a game person. I really don't 
like board games. I didn't grow up in a family where we played a whole lot of them. I find game people really, really annoying. Um, if someone's like, let's play Settlers of Catan, I'm climbing out the window. I love Yahtzee, though. So <laughs> I'm just like, yes, Yahtzee is the best. I love that game so much. Because it really is just a game of chance and then just trying to make do with what you have. Yeah. And I don't know. I like that. <laughs> Better than all the stupid strategy of having all the dumb little men out playing Risk. Oh, God, I hate Risk. Not as much as I hate Monopoly. Oh, boy. Chapter 23, yes. Shrine. Shrine. Raxus brings Kendra just outside the Fairy Queen's Shrine. Perched nearby are 12 Astrids, human-faced owls that were once the honor guard for the Fairy King. However, when they failed to protect the Fairy King from the demon Gorgrog, the Fairy Queen stripped them of their power and cast them out. Despite this, most Astrids remain loyal, hoping to reclaim their place in her favor. Anyway, the Astrids are all like, What you doing here, Kendra? Come to destroy another Fairy Queen shrine? Kendra goes to the shrine and speaks with the Fairy Queen. The Queen has seen into the Sphinx's mind and is surprised that he is ultimately human. He believes his cause to be just, and that he can keep the demons he releases from destroying too much of the world. However, he is also power-hungry, and will be unable to control what he sets free. Kendra explains her current goals and asks for help. Perhaps the Queen can forgive the Astrids? Having a flock of psychic birds may be useful, and after all, they didn't mean to get the Fairy King killed. Surely they've learned their lesson. The Queen is frustrated to admit that Kendra has a point. She creates a mental connection between Kendra and the Astrids, which will allow Kendra to communicate with them and request help. She also gives Kendra mental directions to the vault. This is about all she can do, however, and wishes Kendra luck. Kendra returns to Raxus and the Astrids, who she can now communicate with. They are thankful for Kendra speaking on their behalf and will help how they can. Raxus, however, faces execution if he's caught helping her get into the vault. And anyways, he's a useless coward! Kedra remarks that the Fairy Queen believes Raxus has more power than he knows. He's pleased to hear this, but still can't risk it. He will, however, drop her off nearish the vault, and then feign ignorance of her presence. Kendra is dropped off not far from the vault, at which point the Astrids report in with knowledge that her friends are on their way, with help from Thronus. The Astrids will keep the knapsack safe while Kendra gets some rest inside until the others arrive. Kendra cries with relief that she won't be going in alone. All right, so this is another time that the illustrations made me go nope, and this was it. The picture of the Astrid. Oh, you mean where I, I have written above it, oh, I don't yeah. like you in all caps? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, ugh, I don't like these. And then like kind of everyone in the book's like, I don't like them. <laughs> I like when she's, like, thinking, like, God, they're so gross. And they're all like, we are what we are. And she's like, I am so sorry. <laughs> she didn't realize. <laughs> she doesn't think gross. But she does think, like, do I really need help from these mutated birds? And they're just like, w w we try. <laughs> no, they're super upsetting. They look, they, they're, I don't like them. Oh, God. Can you imagine if you Very saw that, if you're just outside and just kind of glance up at a tree and there's like this human fate? Ugh, no. <laughs> they remind me of a video. Uh -oh. So there was a website. I don't remember what it was called, but you would go to it and it basically would just be like, it would just play snippets of random videos from across the entire Internet and it would just change channels periodically for when you didn't know what you wanted to watch. It would just throw things up. And one clip that it showed was a impressively realistic Sphinx-like 
creature, like human face, sort of human-esque body, but also very cat-like in like a cell or something. And it, it, it wasn't, I clicked away from it very quickly, but it was so like realistic and disturbing that I have not forgotten it. And that's kind of what their faces reminded me of, and I don't like it. No, it's it's very uncanny valley. That's my least favorite valley. Uh, My favorite is uh, Hidden Valley, because I like me some ranch. Um, That's so stupid. (laughs) What about Sweet Valley? That's where everyone's crazy. (laughs) It's run by, like, these twins that are just, like, not terribly nice. So, yeah, I don't like Sweet Valley. I don't think the name is true. Chapter 24, Temple. Everyone regroups outside the Dragon Temple and shows off their equipment from Thronus. They've got weapons galore, obviously, and Tana was able to concoct several different potions, including smoke bombs, emergency gaseous potions, elixirs of fire and electricity resistance, three doses of Dragon's Bane poison, and two shots of giant potion, which will make Trask and Dugan large enough to better wield some of the weapons Thronus lent them. Also, Mendigo is good as new. I didn't put it in the notes, but he, like, lost an arm at one point. And so it was two different griffins dropping him off. (laughs) Their first task is to descend a steep cliff into the temple, which they do via rope. On the way, Seth asks Gavin if he's into Kendra, and considering Gavin is wearing one of Thronus' enchanted necklaces to keep him truthful, it seems a good time to ask in Seth's mind. Yes, Gavin admits uh, he's interested to see where their relationship goes. Seth passes this information on to Kendra, who is like, Don't ever talk to boys about me again! (laughs) At the bottom of the cliff is a huge lake with a very narrow path along its edge. They take the path in pairs, and it's only once they're most of the way across that the Hydra Hespera emerges. She's seen better days. Despite having over a dozen heads, some of them look sickly and frail. Gavin taunts her in order to suss out which is the governing head. And once he does, Trask fires a couple arrows into it. They injure a couple more heads while the rest of the group finishes crossing the lake. It seems that the Hydra isn't meant to keep them out so much as to keep them in, since it didn't attack until they were mostly across. This means their escape won't be easy. They press onwards into the ravine, and a huge head emerges. Gavin names it Glamis and tells everyone to hold their breath. While he tries to get Kendra safely into the knapsack, Seth feels impossibly drowsy and can hardly remember what's going on. He takes a breath and immediately blacks out. Well, I remember thinking that Gavin phrased his uh, sentence really weird, and there's a payoff for that later. So I just love Seth being like, so, we're partway down a steep cliff, and you're wearing a necklace that makes you unable to lie. You're... How do you feel about my he sister? <laughs> I know. I, I like all the heads fighting with each other. That's kind of kind of it. Um, we're at a really actiony part, so there's not much to. The actiony parts always have the least amount for us to talk yeah. about. Yeah, and what least amount to write? That's kind of because I don't go step by step like he did this and then he did this. And I just do the overview of like they hit the thing, they went. <laughs> right. They if they kill monster. Next monster chapter. goes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Chapter twenty five slayings. Kendra wakes up in the ravine with Tanu standing over her. Tanu says they were put to sleep by the dragon Glamis, but he killed it. Oh, also, this isn't Tanu speaking. It's Vanessa! Her sleepy senses tingled when people started falling asleep, so she hopped into Tanu's body and found herself lying below a dragon's head with a very big sword next to her. Put two and two together, and she's now a dragon slayer. She helps Kendra round up and awaken the others, then gives Tanu back control of his body. She hopes Kendra will put in a good word for her with her grandparents. Once everyone is ready, they press onwards to the third guardian. 
Gavin scouts ahead, but soon comes rushing back, turning blue and oozing from the eyes. He's been poisoned! Quickly, they use the unicorn horn to purify him. He confirms that the final guardian is Seleta, the legendary poison dragon, who is basically made of toxin. Gavin says it's hopeless to try and progress, but Seth has an idea. If she's made of poison, and the horn removes poison, wouldn't it destroy her completely? And since Kendra is basically a magical battery, can't she make sure the horn has enough juice to purify an entire dragon? So if he and Kendra head in together, protecting each other from the dragon fear, and both stay touching the horn to protect against the poison, they stand a chance of killing Saleta. They'll take Mendigo as a distraction, since he's not alive anyways. The group is forced to admit the plan doesn't suck eggs. Tanu handcuffs the siblings together so they won't get separated, and the siblings head into Saleta's chamber, where they find a many-legged, translucent, slimy monstrosity. They dodge, duck, dip, dive, and dodge <laughs> with Seth hurling taunts until they are able to touch the horn to Saleta's tail. They hold tight as she t simultaneously petrifies from the tail up and boils from the inside out. It's pretty nasty. Once they're sure she's dead, they go to get the others, but Mendigo is gone. Some of Saleta's toxins ate all his wood, and all that's left are his metal hook joints. Saddened, they gather the hooks in hopes they can revive him and reconvene with the others. Gavin, inspired by their strategy, decides to go dip some crossbow bolts in Glamis' vitals to create a tranquilizer for his arrows. While the others get what they need from the vault, he'll head back to the Hydra and try to put her to sleep so they have an easy way out. It's also decided that Trask, Kendra, and Seth will continue into the vault while Tanu, Dugan, Mara, and Warren wait in the chamber before Stiletta's in case there's any lingering poison. Uh, I kept thinking of her name as Stiletto. Me too. Yeah. Uh, the most fearsome creatures, Stiletto, Kurosawa, Granola, Bathmat. Bathmat. I felt bad for Mandango. I know. I, like, I actually got well, really upset. Did, didn't you really not like him in the yeah, first Yeah, I book? didn't. <laughs> but he really grew on yeah, you. Yeah, I don't know. Like He's a good jangly boy. He's a boy. good jangly boy. Well, that and then like, the very first book, the biggest laugh I had was his arms in the lagoon and he's like kind of reaching a leg out trying to get it. And then one of the naiads reach up and pull him in. And just the vision of that made me laugh so hard. <laughs> so yeah, Mandango, I don't know. Is this one of those um, things where it's like what, what the saddest death in the books says about you kind of situation where I'm the most upset about Mandango, but just like right. um, in Harry Potter, I was the most upset by Dobby's death. Spoilers for Harry Potter, I guess. Who hasn't read it at this point? <laughs> well, who hasn't read it that is listening to this podcast yeah. for sure? I'm not even kidding. I remember the Deathly Hallows like part one was on TV or something and I stumbled across it and it was just as they're leaving Malfoy Manor. And so I get to see Dobby's death. And I was like, I knew it was happening, but like, I was like ugly crying. And I get upset when I think about it, too. I'm just all like, he was a free elf. He was turning his life around. This isn't fair. So, yeah, Mandango's just a handful of joints now. Blaze it. <laughs> <laughs> I... Really liked Vanessa coming into yeah, the day. that was pretty. That was great. I hope that was a real moment of redemption. But she mentioned twice, put in a good word with your grandparents. So I'm like, oh, you're going to do something bad. Uh, no, I thought it was more of just like, a, they're not going to believe me if I tell them that I just saved y'all. <laughs> guess how I spent my afternoon. Just guess. <laughs> also, stiletto sounds disgusting. Oh. 
She's just like this writhing mass of legs just crawling up the walls and just stuff. Just barfing out that stuff. Oh, God. With like her veins visible underneath her translucent skin. Yeah, in the acknowledgments, I think he said like one of his kids or something came up with the idea of this dragon. And I was just all like, that's a very creative kid. You're like, what would be a scary dragon? A dragon so poisonous that just being around it would make you die. And you're like, wow, are you okay? Do we feed you enough? My young, young nephew Cole Saban deserves a special nod for the idea of a dragon who was poisonous down to her blood. So it was his nephew, not one of his kids. Nice. And that's pretty creative. I yeah. mean, what would I have come up with as a kid? Uh, I'll tell you what I would have come up with as a kid. Raxtus. He's white and pretty <laughs> and he has fairy powers. And when he breathes on you, your hair grows. <laughs> what else, Mara? Um, he can still eat a person. <laughs> But you have to really piss him off. <laughs> Chapter 26. <laughs> Ambush. Yeah. Turns out the dragons didn't expect anyone to get past the guardians because the vault is wide open on the other side. Trask cautions both kids, read Seth, <laughs> to only grab the figurines for Thronus Touch and Touch nothing key. but the lamp. Uh, they find what they need without much trouble and return to the others. They head out and find Gavin a bit injured but successful in defeating the Hydra. They leave the shrine and move towards the griffins, which are waiting to take them to Thronus. On the way, Astrid's appear and warn Kendra that there's a dragon ambush waiting for them. She calls out to warn the others, which triggers the dragons to attack, and everything goes crazy. Griffin snags Seth and Tanu and carry them away. Trask commands everyone else into the knapsack while he finds a griffin to take them to safety. The dragons attack the griffin and Trask falls, but uses a gaseous potion to save himself. The knapsack lands on the ground and Trask waves the the group to sidestep cleft where the dragons won't be able to get them. He'll catch up once he can move on his own again. They rush to the entrance of the cleft and find a yellow dragon blocking their way with more dragons on their tail. With no other course of action, Gavin rushes in and turns into an enormous black dragon. He fights off the dragons and then swallows Dugan whole, knocks Mara off a cliff, and takes a swipe at Kendra, who is thankfully wearing her adamant armor. Gavin flies into the air and continues battling the dragons while Kendra goes into the knapsack. She tells Warren what happened, then retrieves her rain stick that she got at the Lost Mesa. She's going to summon a storm so big it will stop the dragon fight and give them a chance to complete their mission. No more hiding in backpacks. Okay. Yeah, that like, was so fast I thought I misread it, so I was like, wait, what? Yeah, like, pretend that we're not doing this with, like, hindsight. Were you expecting? No. Okay, see, I was expecting Gavin betrayal when he was introduced. Because I remember thinking, like, oh, this is a kid no one's ever heard of, and just this one guy's vouching for him. Okay, we're we're accepting him. Okay. So then I let my guard down, but I was initially kind of like, I don't really. Right, but then when he gets to be into the second book, and you're like, all right, cool. They've done things together. Probably good. Yeah. Then nope, he's a dragon. Ha <laughs> <laughs> psych. And you're like, no, no psych. Take back scenes! It makes a lot of sense, though, because we're kind of taking his word for it, what he's telling these dragons when he speaks to them. And he's been out of the room talking to them quite a number of times. So, I mean, once you once you backtrack, it, like, starts clicking, and you're like, oh, hamburgers, you're right. <laughs> Which is good that you can backtrack and see some of the signs, because then it feels like a surprise that wasn't unearned. Yes, this was an earned twist. Take note. But yeah, uh, I and I was so bummed out for her because I was like, 
Oh, that was your potential boyfriend. That's got to... Don't you hate when it turns out the boy you like is like a mean, evil dragon who's way <laughs> older than you, so it would have been Totes Ox? <laughs> Don't you hate when your crush consumes a man whole in front of you? Yeah, and I didn't really set in that Duke instead... Until he turned back into human. Yeah, I was just like, I was just like, okay, that's... Until Gavin, like, goes back to being human, and then I'm like, he's gone. <laughs> How are you not blowing up from having a man in your stomach? Like, No, well, what happens is they just turns into a tiny little man in his stomach, and they have to send the magic school bus to go get him out. Yeah, like, we'll get him out when you poop him out in a couple days. <laughs> God. What a horrible way to die. The magic school bus learns about dragon digestion. <laughs> and Arnold's in the back. Why did we do this? <laughs> Arnold's in the back, but he's now like 45, and he's like, why is this still happening to and me? And she's like, because you're the vice principal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I tried to put a stop to this. These horrible field trips. Why can't we go to the zoo like everyone else? Where did he ask for the aquarium? I don't remember. He was usually just all like, why Why is anything ever a thing? Like, in real life, he would have, like, talked to his parents and they'd have had him transferred out of the class. Like, Arnold is, like, nine and he has the worst ulcers of anyone. <laughs> Worse than a 45-year-old. And then Miss Frizzle is like, well, kids, do you want to learn ulcers? about ulcers? And he's like, you get your bus away from me. <laughs> and your creepy, overly-themed dresses that are you're about to wear when you go on one of these excavate, excavate, no, exertions. No, excursions. I know words. When you're about to go on one of these excretions. Yeah. Well, that's fair enough, because that's where we're supposed to find Dugan. In the poo-poos. No, find Dugan in the doo-doo. Dugan in the doo-doo? <laughs> isn't he Maddox's brother? Maddox yes. is probably dead himself, isn't he? Because the bulb? Uh, he they, He's a clone of Maddox, and Maddox was in bad shape when they were able to do that and since they were able to do that he's probably in the hands of the bad people they confirmed that he was abducted by the sphinx they never mentioned whether or not he was like executed i would assume since th they didn't say that he's probably he's probably valuable alive because he knows so much about the different species and probably the different uh parks because he trades to all yeah. of them i think didn't we talk about this in the first book i was like so why aren't they talking to maddox because he should know every single one of the parks anyway Go ahead, go ahead. Alright, chapter 27, Navarog. Seth is safely delivered to Thronus and gives the giant the figurines. <laughs> Thronus reveals that each figurine, if the correct command spell is used on it, will grow into a full-size version of what it depicts. Thronus only needed three of them, a red dragon, a white snow giant, and a green chimera, which will all follow his orders once transformed. Seth is free to keep the other two figurines, which are of a stronghold tower and a leviathan. Something tells me he'll need them in Ooh. book five. Thronus breaks the spell on Seth and the others' lie detector necklaces, and the deal is done. After deducing what's going on outside, Thronus agrees to help Kendra create a massive storm. Meanwhile, down inside Step Clef, Gavin returns in human form and approaches Kendra, who is all alone. The truth is revealed. Gavin is Navarog. Has been the whole time. He was the one who freed the dragon Shalise that destroyed the Lost Mesa. He framed the Guardian Javier. Furthermore, the current mission is going almost exactly as the Sphinx intended. He let the Stingbulb Kendra find Fablehaven on purpose, knowing its report would spur our heroes into tracking down the next key. All the Sphinx had to do was wait for them to invite Gavin along. The only stumbling block was Nafia recognizing him, but she covered for him by saying Navarog was spotted outside the sanctuary. Now, if Kendra would kindly give up, 
Gavin would like to deliver her and the key to the Sphinx. Kendra tries to resist, so Gavin goes into the knapsack to retrieve the egg key and kill Warren. Kendra promises to go quietly if he spares Warren. Gavin climbs back out of the bag with the key, then sets the bag on fire, trapping Warren in an extra-dimensional stockroom with a Yahtzee-loving troll as his only company. The Astrids swoop in to try and help Kendra, but Gavin swiftly kills the three that arrive. However, he doesn't notice Raxtus sneak up behind him shortly after. Kendra does, however, and can't hide that she's watching the dragon behind Gavin. She keeps Gavin villain monologuing, steering the conversation towards his crimes against the dragons and how angry Celebrant will be. This gives Raxus the motivation to attack, and in the blink of an eye, he's eaten the demon prince Navarog. Kendra gives him a huge hug, and he begins to literally glow thanks to her fairy magic. He flies Kendra and the burn knapsack somewhere safer for the night, and Kendra gets word from the Astrids that Seth, Trask, Tanu, and Mara are all okay, and they'll reunite tomorrow and leave safely. Okay. After Thronus gets his figures, Seth is like, Sounds like those will come in handy defending your mansion, and he just says they will prove immensely useful. And that's sketch. Like, he's got plans. I don't know what they are, but he's got them. Is he going to take over the whole compound? I don't know. Uh, so being trapped in the knapsack, honestly, might be worse for Bubda yes. because he doesn't like no. people. And now he's stuck with one. And now, oh my god, they're roommates. I feel like Bubda can get them out. He found a way in. He's yeah. from somewhere. I right? think he could get them out. I don't know how, but I feel like I heard that uh, Warren is in the companion series for this, so he's okay, I think. Do we want to read the... Fable Haven. I mean, I wouldn't make any solid decisions on that until after we read That's the fifth true. one. That's true. He could completely screw the pooch in the last book. I don't think he will. I don't will. think he will it's either. It's just whether or not it'll be like, are we stoked to do it? Or is it just like, a, if it happens, that's cool sort of a well, thing? Well, I guess we'll find out. Yeah. Okay, so after Raxus eats <laughs> Navarog, uh, Kendra gives him a hug and he starts to glow and he's like, what are you doing? She's like, you're shining. He's like, I feel really good. I'm full of magical energy. When I touch phrase, they glow brighter. Feels like you lit a fire inside me. You've touched me before. I've touched your clothes like when I carried you, but never skin to scales now. Hug me again. Okay, enough. I feel like I could explode. Was this a long-winded boner joke? I feel like he popped a dragon boner, and I wasn't a big fan of that. <laughs> no. I mean, she just got out of an almost relationship. She can't be seeing another dragon. <laughs> He's all like, yeah, I put on that stutter so you could uh, so you'd think I was weak. And she's like, I liked your stutter. And I'm just like, oh, how embarrassing. And she's like, oh, God, I sent him flirty letters. And just I just really related to that wanting to curl up and die. <laughs> the thing I hated the most about that was that I liked that there was a strong character that had a stutter and that was just a part of who they were. It wasn't like a, yeah, you know, like it's like a representation sort of thing. And then it's like, poor stuttering Professor Quirrell. Yeah. I'm like, oh man. Chapter 28, The New Knights with a K. And an S. Morning with a U, Knights with a K. <laughs> the group returns to Fablehaven without any surprises, except for the one where Seth shatters the unicorn horn in the driveway before revealing it was a decoy he found at a souvenir shop. They go inside and talk business. Of course, everyone will try and find a way to rescue Warren, but his chances aren't great. Vanessa earns some real brownie points for stepping in, but Grandpa Sorison still finds it hard to trust her. Kendra, meanwhile, finds it hard to trust anyone anymore. Seth asks if he's in trouble for stowing away, and Grandpa asks what Seth thinks. 
Seth argues that his decisions were risky but necessary, and Grandpa asks if he wants to be a Knight of the Dawn. Like, for real. Grandpa's coming out of retirement and is now acting captain of the Knights. He swears Seth in and agrees that they'll need to be a bit more aggressive in their strategy of protecting the artifacts and taking down the Evening Star. Seth and Kendrill will be among his closest advisors. They will also remain at Fablehaven for the time being for a few reasons. Obviously, it's safer since they have magical defenses. Kendra is currently dead to the world, and that might be strategically beneficial for now. But the big reason is the bad news Grandpa has to tell them. The Society of the Evening Star has abducted their parents. The- <laughs> I know, I'm like, what? And that's it. I mean, um, it makes sense because I remember thinking, like, why are they okay? Their child just died, and they're now spending Christmas away from their other child. How are they okay with that? And it's like, oh, because they were abducted. He just didn't want to tell you and ruined Christmas. Yeah. And also, I was thinking throughout this book, like, Kendra can't ever go home. They all think she's dead. They had a funeral. There was a body. You can't come back from that. Like, ask Will from Stranger Things. He came back and everyone called him dead boy. <laughs> right. But yeah, that's the end. Very, very much a, like, this is part one of the two-part conclusion yes. sort of a thing. In a way that almost feels like the first 200 pages before they decide they need to head to Wormroost seem kind of like just adventures for the sake of filling it out and getting them to that point. Like, it doesn't really feel like it kicks into gear proper until they're in Wormroost, which is halfway through the book. Yeah, that's why I said this was kind of the weaker entry in the series. <laughs> like, still but again, really you know, good, but yeah. not as great. And it's like, you know, maybe Torino will show back up in book five or something, and some of that will become more necessary. I want um, that library back where it has the shark in it. Someone needs to get eaten by that shark. Chekhov's shark. Like, don't promise me a shark swimming loose and then not deliver it eating somebody. I was so disappointed. But there's still another book. We, we'll find out. <sighs> when she abandoned her mansion, maybe she took her library aquarium with her. I don't, I don't know. Can you imagine <laughs> opening up the back of that moving truck? Like, what am I looking at right now? <laughs> well, that's it. That's Fablehaven 4. And yeah, it, it's like, okay. Well, all of that was just to get to the start of book five, yeah, yeah. in a way. But still, like minute, it's like minute to minute, still very entertaining. Looking at it, at it as a whole, it's like not as strong. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Um, but still good. Still excited to do the fifth one in a. Year. Oh, do we really have to wait that long? Uh, we don't have to. We just oh, always okay. have. But we've talked about doing it like every six months instead. We just never got around to it because we kept thinking of other things we wanted to do to like coincide with like the changing of the seasons. Well, I don't think we have anything planned for summer like ever. So we can probably do the fifth one sometime in one of the summer months. True. Maybe make it our July one. True. Let me, uh, where was the name of the book that we're reading? Wolf Hollow? Is that what it's called? Uh, yeah. Wolf Hollow by Lauren Wolk. Uh, sent to us by a listener named Lily. So, thank you, Lily. Uh, we are going to be reading that for our May book, because it, was it coincide with? Memorial Day. Memorial Day yeah. in May. Okay. Uh, yeah, so we're going to be checking that out next month. Yeah. Yeah. Hello, fellow kids. This is hosted by Mara and Josh, produced by Josh, music provided by Ben Ash. Visit him at benash.com. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so at hfkpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter and Instagram at hfkpodcast. We will be back May 1st with Wolf Hollow. Bye. Bye. Bye.